Now, I've always loved taking photographs. I've got a reasonably decent camera, some filters, a tripod, and I don't just rely on my um, phone. My favourites are nature photographs and landscapes. Sue and I can be out walking, maybe just walking the dog in Richmond Park, and I can end up quite a few steps behind her because I've spotted something that looks quite interesting and feel I must take a photograph. I also enjoy cityscapes. Here's a few of mine. This is a silhouette of Westminster at dusk. Um, and then we've got the New York skyline from the top of the rock. And uh, the next one is um, Auckland, taken from a boat out in the harbour. Now, reading Psalm 48, I wonder how magnificent a photograph of Mount Zion might be. The city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king, part landscape, part cityscape, Mount Zion, the towers, the ramparts, the citadels, some of which you can still see today. The city of David, a near impregnable fortress that had been a remaining stronghold of the Jebusites for over 400 years from when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. Through the time of Judges, the reign of their first king, Saul, and into the time of King David, a surviving enclave of the original Gentile inhabitants, who, along with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, the Lord God promised to drive out from the land of milk and honey. A surviving enclave, that is, until attacked by King David in one of his first military campaigns, which is documented in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. David and all Israel marched to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you will not come here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, now the city of David. If we read on further in Samuel 2, Samuel chapter 6, we can read the story of King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant containing the tablets upon which were scribed the Ten Commandments. He brought them to Jerusalem, the city of David. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's mighty presence with his people. It's where he manifested his glory to his people in their worship in the tabernacle. Zion now surely was his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, the city of the great king. Now, David's son and successor, King Solomon, went on to build the temple. And then David's other son, Jesus, in John's Gospel, chapter 2, says that, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So we have a new covenant shift in emphasis, a move away from observance of the law of Moses and um, sanctification by animal sacrifice 
to salvation through the blood of Jesus. The church, that is to say you and me, not the building, are sometimes called the body of Christ. And Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Now, please feel free to open your Bibles to Psalm 48, which is on page 478. And as we were told, that's more or less in the middle. The writers of this psalm are keen to point out that while Zion, that is to say Jerusalem, is the city of God, his reign, his glory and his greatness is over all the earth. And they've done that by cleverly including all four points of the compass, one in each of the four stanzas that make up this poem. Now, two are obvious. In the first stanza, we can see Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now, north here is an interpretive translation of a place name, Zaphon. Zaphon is a mountain. Um, the new international version puts it like this, that beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Now, Mount Zaphon um, is a tall mountain over 1,700 metres above sea level. It was in the land of Canaan, which was in the far north, and the considered by the Canaanites to be the home of their god, their deity, Baal. So the psalmist here is claiming one-upmanship. Our mountain is better than your mountain. Our god is better than your god. In the second stanza, we can read that when the east wind shatters the ships of Tarshish. So we all know about the beast from the east from earlier in the year. Um, I suppose it was kind of like that. And the Phoenician vessels were used for trade and were some of the strongest and most sturdy sailing in the Mediterranean. Now, south and west remain hidden from our western eyes, but to the Jewish reader of the day, they would have been obvious. In the third stanza, we can read, your right hand is filled with victory. Now, when we look at a map our primary direction is north. So let's drop our Google Maps pegman looking north. There we go. However, in the days of the psalm and in the culture of the time, their primary direction was east, as that's where the sun rises. So let's rotate pegman so he's looking east. There we go. And if we look to the east, your right hand points to the south. So right hand is Jewish idiom for south. In the fourth stanza, we read that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Now, next generation, that's a reference to the future. While we tend to say that the future's in front of us, the Israelites thought of the future as being behind them because it was unknown and hidden from view. And the past was in front of them because it was in plain sight. You could see it. Um, Imagine you're rowing a boat 
um, you have a rather splendid view of where you've been, but no sight of what's still to come. So now let's go back to the map. Imagine you're looking in your primary easterly direction and the future is behind you. So let's look at Pegman looking east. That direction is behind him. That's where his boat is headed, west. So the psalmist proclaims the complete and total lordship of the God of Israel over the whole earth. He is the God of the north, of Zaphon, where the Canaanites located God's dwelling place. He's the God of the east, of the wind that comes before you. He's the God whose right hand is working out his just purposes. And the God whom the people behind us, whom we cannot yet see, will be able to rely on. Now, Psalm 48 is a hymn of praise, specifically praise to God for all that Jerusalem meant to Israel. We start the psalm praising God's greatness and lifting up Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the place where he is to be worshipped and adored. And this is followed by a description of Jerusalem. Now, mountains have always been regarded as places of religious significance, the dwelling places of God, where monasteries are located and the like. Maybe that's because of their remoteness from society or because they're thought of as being close to heaven. Now, actually, Mount Zion is 765 metres above sea level. I mentioned that Sue and I enjoy going to uh, Isle of Arran. The mountain there is Goat Fell. That's actually over 100 metres taller at 874 metres. Snowdon is 1,085 metres. Ben Nevis is... 1,345 metres, and Zaphon that we talked about earlier, that's 1,709 metres. The other holy mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, that's 2,285 metres. And two weeks ago, we uh, mentioned Mount Hermon, the Dew of Mount Hermon, if you remember, Ali. Um, And that's 2,814 metres. So as mountains go, Zion isn't particularly tall. Um, Even the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem's east is taller. The beautiful elevation, the joy of all the earth, is not so much to do with the mountain's physical presence, but more to do with its religious significance. Jerusalem is where earth meets heaven, where God meets mankind, and even more so now than then. This is the place where Jesus walked. He lived and breathed. He was crucified, died, and was buried here. Now, Israel uh, was a fairly small and relatively insignificant nation, and David, their king, was Jesse's youngest son, And Zion is a small, insignificant mountain. But don't forget that God chooses what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Moving on, Zion is the place where the Lord triumphs over 
Israel's enemies. Not so much, I came, I saw, I conquered. More, I came, I saw, run away! There are a couple of stories in the Bible that this might refer to. Uh, Biblical scholars are unsure. Um, There are stories in 2 Kings chapter 19 or 2 Samuel chapter 10 that uh, might be the event that maybe this psalm was written to celebrate. For us, we might not be experiencing military opposition, but rather unseen forces of suffering. Behind them all are the forces of evil trying to storm the gates of Jerusalem. But God's people to experience deliverance as we look forward. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God establishes forever. Testimony is vital. To hear stories of God's faithfulness In our 11.30 service, we have a new section, and it's great to hear people when they bring forward topics for prayer, and even greater when we hear maybe a few Sundays later about answers to prayer. For us as individuals, why don't we try and keep a prayer diary, noting down what we've thought about, what we've prayed about, and being able to celebrate when we see God answering our prayers. And... um, In terms of uh, teaching and learning, don't forget the importance of visual aids. The Israelites were told to celebrate Passover every year as a remembrance of uh, their delivery out of Egypt, a tradition that continues today. And in the same way, we enact every week the Last Supper until he comes again. We ponder your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Your name, O God, like your praise, reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with victory. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the towns of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. In this third stanza, we're reminded of some of the characteristics of God. His steadfast love, his high renown, his, that is to say, his reputation. Now, As it happened, Germany crashed out of the World Cup at the group stages. But beforehand, they were the team that England didn't really want to meet. You know, um, they they were the world champions. Um, They went into the tournament with a high reputation. And of course, England v Germany has history. Likewise, the Israelites, marching under the banner of God, they had a reputation with the surrounding nations. Walk around Zion, go all around it, count its towers, consider well its ramparts, go through its citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. We're told to walk around Zion, to number her towers and consider her ramparts. We are to give attention to the work of God in the midst of his people, to think of all that God has provided and done for us. The psalmist says we must do this so that we can tell our children. And how will they know if we don't show and tell them by our choices and passions, by what we prioritise in our life, what we invest our time and resources in? that God and his people are so valuable to us.
You know, I love a good football match. Nothing, Ali, nothing was going to interrupt me watching the quarterfinals of the World Cup yesterday. Okay? But, you know, I take it and I leave it to a certain extent. But some fans, some England fans and football fans worldwide have a real passion and zeal. And we need to bring that to our religion. I'm sure those of you that support a football team, your children know what team you support, don't they? Likewise, we must point our children to the gospel, to the promises of God, to his presence with us, to his unfailing love, and live in a way that our children will be able to see that God and his church are our passion and our priority. Now, our church here in Isleworth has been a place for Christian worship for hundreds of years down the generations. Um, that uh, plaque you can see there is just as you walk through the, uh, the tower. So take a look on your way out if you haven't read it before. But it's no longer a certainty that the next generation will come to church. And you know, although the future may be hidden, we do have an inkling of what is to come. Because the evangelist John tells us of his vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. However, there is a warning. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know God, you have not yet seen him as worthy of all our affection and devotion, as triumphant and sovereign in all his ways, as righteous and holy, worthy of all our praise, then it's my prayer that God himself will open your eyes and stir your hearts and draw you to himself. Amen.